Chapter 4 Almighty God or the Almighty Dollar Money is one of God's most useful good gifts. Are you surprised? But isn't money the root of all evil? No. Read the scriptures again. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, Paul says, The love of money is the root of all evil. Emphasis, mine. God never said money was evil. He gave us the right to own material things, to have personal possessions. One of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not steal. This shows the importance God put on the right of ownership. Certain cults deny people this right. They demand newcomers sign over their wealth and property to God. The inference is that owning things is wrong and displeasing to God, and that the only way to please Him is to own nothing. In every lie of Satan, there is a grain of truth. God does love a cheerful giver, and throughout history there have been Christian groups who have forsaken all to follow Jesus. But let no human being demand that you give up all earthly possessions before you can before you can follow God. On the other hand, the Lord may lead you to give everything you have. But even if you give all the time and again, don't let go of the joy of giving. In 1971, when Darlene and I were leading the first missionary school in Lausanne, Switzerland, we believed God was telling us to buy the hotel which we were renting for the school. It was the first property our fledging organization tried to buy, and it was quite a stretching experience for our faith. We needed thousands of dollars. God led us and our group of staff and students through many steps of obedience as we prayed and trusted Him for the money. One step which God required of Darlene and me was to give everything we owned. My parents had helped us buy a house in California several years before. We kept it rented out to cover the payments each month. It was our only nest egg. Darlene and I sold this house, paid off the indebtedness, and gave the balance along with all the money we had in the bank at the time toward the purchase of the hotel in Switzerland. We bought the hotel in June of 1971. As God brought in contributes from other contributions from other friends throughout the world to add to what our little group had scraped together, but the story didn't end there. For the next 15 years, Darlene, the children, and I continued to live wherever we were working with our mission, sometimes in one room, other times in two or three rooms at a training center. We didn't think of it as a sacrifice to not own a house. Then, in early 1986, God spoke to us about buying our own house. It seemed ridiculous. We didn't have any money or ability to buy one. But in various ways, God told us that we would own our own home soon. One of the scriptures that spoke directly to me was Proverbs 13, where it says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children. Ah, I'm so sorry. Where it says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Unknown to us, a young YWAMer named Matthew Nockis from the training center in Lindale, Texas, went to his leaders, Leland and Fran Paris, with an idea. He wanted to give, and get, the thousands of others in our organization to give, to buy us a house. The idea was to honor us and show us a practical demonstration of the love of more than 6,500 full-time YWAM workers around the world. They set up a trust and for many months secretly collected love gifts from our friends. What happened next was almost humbling. 
happy time for me and my family. We were invited for a special evening in a lovely hotel ballroom in Kona, Hawaii. More than 700 gathered for what they called Operation Honor. Many of our friends talked about their love for us, some speaking in their native tongues of Tongan, Swahili, Arabic, Portuguese, Indonesian, and others. Then, when our hearts were bursting with the emotion of it all, they brought out the architectural drawings and building plans for a beautiful house for which they had purchased property in Kona. We were overwhelmed, stunned, and wanting to cry and laugh at the same time. Then they flung open the double doors at one side of the ballroom, and there was a new Nissan sedan, the first car of our own in more than 20 years. I sat there shaking my head in disbelief while Darlene whooped like a game show contestant. The immediate impact of the evening was the almost embarrassing display of love and gratitude from the ones we loved and appreciated so much. Later it sank in that God was also repaying our obedience to him 15 years earlier when we sold our nest egg to buy our first mission property. And he was giving us something to leave behind for our children. You see, even if you give everything you have, God will return it to you so that you will always have the joy of giving. He promises this explicitly in Mark 10:29 through 30 Ownership is a right and a responsibility which he has given you. Jesus talked about money more than any other topic. In fact, one out of six of his statements recorded in the Gospels pertain to financial matters. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about salvation, heaven, the church, or the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus give such attention to money? I believe it is because he knew how close our wallets are to our hearts. Martin Luther said that the last thing to get converted is most often a person's pocketbook. One third of Jesus' parables were about money or possessions. The parables of the talents in Matthew 25 was one. Often we hear the parable used to talk about other talents, skills like piano playing or public speaking. But we must remember it was money that Jesus was talking about in this passage. We could call it the parable of the dollars. A talent weighed approximately 75 pounds, assuming that these were gold talents. We can figure that when Jesus said one servant was given five talents, he was talking about over two million dollars in today's terms. The point of the parable was that we were expected to wisely use our resources, investing money for the kingdom of God. Most Christians have no problem understanding their God-given right to ownership. What is out of balance is our willingness to obey God in giving. Instead of worshiping Almighty God, we worship the Almighty Dollar. The Lord has given us people to love and things to use, but too often we love things and use people. Perhaps you know someone with an expensive sports car. He spends hours maintaining and polishing it. He parks carefully at a diagonal across two parking spots, lest someone open a car door next to his prized vehicle and scratch the finish. Only a certain garage can handle this vehicle. Only a special service can be trusted to wash it. Have you ever thought that the car seemed to be driving him rather than vice versa? It's easy to smile over these excuses, but what about our own? A friend of mine said that you could read anyone else's checkbook and see what they were living for. Jesus stood at the treasury and watched the people giving. What does he see in your checkbook? What is the pattern of your giving to him and his work? Some may think all of this doesn't apply to them. 
Didn't Jesus say it was harder for the rich to enter heaven? You may say, I'm always broke, I'm just a student. Or, I'm out of a job, God can't be telling me to give. Don't think that because you are poor you cannot be serving money rather than God. I have seen just as much bondage to ownership in third world countries where the average per, average per capita income is below poverty level. There the bondage may be to a bicycle rather than a Porsche or to a trans, transistor, radio, ra, transistor radio instead of a compact disc player. For the poor, the lust to own and the right the fear to release is just as strong, if not stronger. The poor lust so much after things they are in kept they are kept in financial bondage, rather than saving money so that it can be multiplied. They often fall into debt with a get it now mentality. The rich, on the other hand, are freer from money. Their temptation is more often for the power and control that their money can buy them. Have you ever seen someone who wants to make a large gift to the church? provided they start doing things their way. All God wants is for us to relax our grip on what we own, to open our hands and allow Him to use what He has placed in it. He says we can't be a servant to money and a servant to Him at the same time. He gives us the right to own things and then asks us to give back to Him freely what He has blessed us with. Since God truly owns everything anyway, including whatever He has allowed us to have, we have the choice either to be a good steward or to be a thief and steal from him. The late R.G. Latourneau, <laughs> the late R.G. Latourneau, a man made wealthy by his invention of various earth-moving equipment, put it this way, It's not how much of my money that I give to God that counts, it's how much of his money I kept for myself. Only as we give up the right to spend our money, as we want, we will see God as a provider. When we say to God, tell me what you want, all I have is yours. How do you want me to use it for you? Only then will we have the excitement of seeing him do the miraculous to meet our needs. Only then will we understand the security of being a child of God that transcends any layoff, any recession, any market slump even famine. There was a widow once, a single mother raising her son alone. They were broke, and for some time they had not had enough to eat. Both suffered from malnutrition. The little boy had matchsticks legs and arms, and a bloated stomach of starvation, and the mother could barely drag herself around to take care of his needs. There was just enough food left to make one tiny meal. She planned to prepare that, a small loaf of bread, and then she would lie down with her little boy and wait for death. She was foraging for some sticks, building a fire to cook the loaf, when she was approached by a stranger. He was a man of God named Elijah. He wanted something to eat. She must have stood there swaying a little in her hunger, wondering how this man could ask her for what little she had. Couldn't he see her cloudy eyes, her drawn face? And what about her son, lying at home on his pallet, not even strong enough to wave away the flies. For weeks, in her quiet mounting panic, she had listened to his pitiful cries. Yet, at the moment when the man of God challenged her to give, something must have rallied within her, some spark that said, Yes, give it away, what do you have to lose? She did sacrifice, and you probably know the rest of the story. 
She gave that last handful of flour and a few drops of oil, and Elijah ate her loaf of bread. Then he left her and the boy with an abundant provision of food for the future. But the key was this. She had to give up the right to her possessions before God was able to meet her own needs. There are enormous needs in the world today. God is not deaf to the cries of the 750 million who go to sleep every night with their stomachs gnawed with hunger. He knows the name of every one of the 20 million children who curl up to sleep on the pavement of South America's cities tonight. He wept over the frail bodies of the 40,000 children who died yesterday from hunger. He sees the 21 who will die of hunger in the time it takes you to read this sentence. He knows the desperate who are homeless on the streets of America, the families who are huddled to sleep in cars or under the overpasses of our freeways. He watches the 900 million around the world who will sleep in shanties of cardboard or scrap tin tonight, and the 100 million who will lay down without any roof at all over their heads. He knows those who are without any form of sanitation, who forage in the world's garbage dumps, those who die for the lack of cheap, simple medicines, those who have no school where they can send their children and no future to look forward to. As gut-wrenching as these needs are, they are only a part of the story. How much Christ must weep over the 100,000 who die every day without having heard his name? He knows by name every individual among the 2.5 billion worldwide waiting to hear the gospel. Why doesn't he do something to finance the job of the world evangelization? If God could create manna and rain down food for several, several million of his people in the wilderness, can't he produce enough money for people to meet his physical and spiritual needs of the world today? I believe he already has. God has placed enough resources in the hands of Christians to fully evangelize the billions in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. He has given us enough to preach the gospel and to meet physical needs as well. The funds are already there, like a handful of meal and a drop or two of oil in a bottle, waiting to be multiplied and given out to feed a hungry world. Let me give some examples. Dr. David Barrett, researcher and editor of the World Christian Encyclopedia, reports that there are 1.68 billion people who name the name of Christ. Christians who have annual incomes totaling approximately USD $8.2 trillion and own two-thirds of the Earth's resources. It would take each person who calls him or herself Christian only $1 to place a Bible in every home on Earth. Based on Earth's population of 5 billion, an average of people to a home and the cost of less than $1 per copy... There are 2,000 unreached ethno-linguistic groups in the world. If only 40 million Christians gave $1 a year, we could support two missionaries for each of these groups. For the cost of caring for a pet dog or cat for a year, a child in a third world could be given a Christian education. There are 16 million refugees in the world, according to most sources. To feed every one of those refugees, it would only cost 1.6 billion who call themselves Christians one penny a day. You can see that when I say God has already given us the money to evangelize the world, it is literally true, and at no great sacrifice either. God wants to meet every person's needs, spiritual and physical. 
He wants to involve us in meeting and that need. He could do it without us. He could have fed Elijah without the widow's handful of meal and cruise of oil. And he did feed Elijah supernaturally at one point by sending ravens with food. But God wanted to bless the woman and share with her the excitement of seeing a miracle performed on her behalf. You may have a desire in your heart to give, but are continually frustrated when you hear of your when you hear of financial needs. Every day may bring missionary newsletters to your door, each presenting legitimate needs. How can you know whom to give to and how much? I believe the only key to this frustration is to listen to the voice of the Lord in your giving. Give out of obedience to Him, not out of your own emotion. A story from for some close friends of mine will show what I mean. A number of years ago, a group of young people was leaving Southern California on a YWAM outreach to Hawaii. My friends Jim and Joy Dawson are among the most spiritually attuned people I know. They had gone to the Los Angeles airport to see the youth off because their son and daughter were a part of the team. When they walked in, they found two, Steve and Verna, sitting forlornly on the terminal. This pair was on the list of those who were to leave, but Joy found out they didn't have enough money to buy their tickets. They were each $100 short. Both Steve and Verna felt God was telling them to go on this mission venture and had come with their bags packed as an act of faith and obedience. Joy prayed with her husband, though they had already given several hundred dollars to others leaving on this team. They were willing to give to these two if God directed them to do so. As the Dawsons bowed their heads in the terminal, they asked the Lord if they were to give more. The Lord impressed both of them, however, that they were not to give. The words that Joy received in her mind were, You've done your part. I want to provide for these two through someone else. There was nothing to do but stand back and let the drama unfold. They watched the clock. The flight was due to leave at 6 p.m., and there were only minutes left. Then a voice came over the PA system. Western Airlines, Flight 771, leaving for Honolulu, now boarding at Gate 63. The group, minus Stephen Verna, filed down the jet bridge. Six o'clock came and passed, yet Jim and Joy watched through the airport smoked glass window as the big plane sat unmoving. Why weren't they leaving? The uniformed airline agent still stood behind the desk at the gate, the empty jet bridge yawning at his back. No voice came over the PA to explain the delay. Jim looked at his watch. It was now 6.15. Just then, a young wyammer, Clay Golaher, came rushing into the terminal. He was panting, his face damp and red. Has the plane left for Hawaii? he gasped. God told me to give some money to the team, but leaving for Hawaii. He nodded to Steve and Verna. Do you need some money? Yes, Steve said. We each need one hundred dollars. Clay reached into his pocket and pulled out a white envelope. Then I guess this is for you two. Steve and Verna thanked him, grabbed the money, and ran to the airline's personnel. At first they refused them. It was too late, they were told. Everyone else was on the plane, and besides, it was already past the departure time. Jim Dawson got into the act, persuading the officials to bend a little and let the two young people join their friends on the plane. They're going on a missionary trip, Jim offered. Finally, the airline's people gave in. Tickets were hastily written out, and Steve and Verna ran down the jet bridge, carrying their suitcases on board with them. Clay and Jim and Joy watched as the big plane slowly pulled away. Then they heard Clay's side of the story. 
Clay had been in another part of L.A. that afternoon, at the Philippine consultant getting a visa for his own missionary trip. As he crossed the marble lobby to leave, God's voice came clearly into his mind. You don't need that extra spending money you have for your trip. The Lord impressed him that he was to give it to the team leaving for Hawaii that evening. He looked at a clock on the wall in the office building. 2.30, and he knew the group was leaving at 6. He rushed out of the building and began looking for a bus. He hopped aboard and slowly made his way across L.A. in fits and starts. Finally, he was deposited in Foothill Boulevard in Sunland, one block away from the YWAM Center. Clay ran to the building, but his heart sank at the sight of the empty parking lot. There was one car, however. The doors to the center were all locked, but he went around banging on the side doors, the front and back doors. A boy came to the door dripping wet. He had been in the shower. He told Clay the Hawaii team had left an hour before. At Clay's urging, the boy dressed and the two got in the car and headed to the airport. Fighting the L.A. rush hour... Excuse me. Fighting the L.A. Oh, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> Fighting the L.A. rush hour traffic on the freeways. At last, they arrived at the curb in front of the Western Terminal, well after the flight's departure time. Clay stopped his story and began to laugh with Jim and Joy. There were so many improbable incidents in his account. A bus just at the right time in a city known for its lack of buses? One lone guy left behind taking a shower who happened to have a car? The unexplained delay of the plane until after Clay got there? How much they had they would have missed, they all agreed, if Jim and Joy had reacted out of their emotions and given the money to the two. So many times we miss the excitement of giving because we don't listen to the Lord and obey Him. When our motivation in giving is to obey and please our Heavenly Father, then we will, be, we will become free from other temptations that often come with financial appeals. On the one hand, we can avoid the greed that is often appealed to. Give to God and He will give you more. We can also avoid the trap of manipulation. Giving in order to control others. And the trap of a prideful motive. Giving in order to have our name engraved on a plaque on the front of a building. Nor should we fall prey to appeals on that work on our guilt. If you don't give now, this ministry will cease and millions will go to hell. Instead, we can give out of a pure heart, obeying the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Then we will see God as our provider as well. In Youth with a Mission, we have seen many financial miracles for those who have given all. We have a slogan, You do the possible, then God will do the impossible. Dean and Michelle Sherman were YWAMers in Hilo, Hawaii, trusting God for the money to meet the needs of their young family. They were broke, they, <laughs> they were broke and had just run out of formula for their baby. Michelle prayed, then she and Dean walked home to their apartment from the training center. On the way, Michelle stopped and stared at a bush beside the busy road. She could scarcely believe her eyes, for there on the plant were crisp one and five dollar bills, each lying neatly across a different branch. Dean and Michelle picked them all off and counted. It was thirty-five dollars, enough to buy formula and a baby carrier like Michelle had been wanting. You might say they literally found money growing on a tree. God had used an extraordinary method to meet their need. More often, though, God uses other people to meet our needs. He does this to encourage independence in the body of Christ. How many have money they could give but are waiting to get a little more secure, to invest a little more first, or to have a few more 
basic necessities of their own met. How often does God speak to us to give and we shrug it off, rationalizing the impression away? Years ago, I was in New Zealand speaking at a Youth for Christ retreat that drew together young people from many backgrounds. Along with teenagers from local churches, there were some new Christians who were making decisions to leave behind alcohol or drug addictions and serve Christ, and even some who had never accepted Jesus as Lord. It was after one of these meetings that I took a walk before going to bed. I left behind the scattered buildings of the camp and walked toward the country road, enjoying the moonlit outline of the trees and nearby sheep paddocks. An impression came onto my mind and I stopped on the dirt path. I recognized the still small voice of God. Lauren, what do you have in your pocket? I reached in and drew out some bills and change. Looking up at the sky, I held it out. I have some money, Lord. So many exciting things had been happening at this conference, I was ready to do anything God told me. Throw your money down on the ground, the inner voice said. Quickly, I tossed it down and walked on, wondering what on earth God would do with my money. I imagined a scenario of a person with some urgent need praying and finding my money. Before I got very far, God surprised me and spoke again in my mind. Go back and pick it up, Lauren. I tried to ignore it, supposing it was just my thoughts, but the impression grew in its intensity. Finally, I retraced my steps back along the path, knelt down, felt around on all the scattered coins and bills, and shoved them into my pocket. I straightened up and disappointedly turned back toward the camp. As I came into the lightened area, a figure was walking toward me. I could make out the face and stringy hair of a teenager who was approaching me. I had been counseling with him earlier that day and knew he was a drug addict. Again, the voice came in my, in my mind. Give all of the money in your pocket to him. I argued with God, just long enough for the teenager to pass me and disappear into the darkness. As I kept walking, I pointed out to the Lord that this fellow couldn't be trusted. He might use the money for drugs. Anyway, he was gone. Probably by now he was already in his room, and I did not know where that was. But God wouldn't let me forget his orders. All right, Lord, I sighed. If this is really you, have that same guy be there when I walk back around this building. I circled the cinder block structure and nearly bumped into the same young, same young guy coming around the corner. Finally, I obeyed God and handed him all of my money. In the light of an outdoor lantern, I watched as he began to cry in amazement. Then he spoke quietly. I just told God I would go to that Christian drug rehabilitation place if he would give me the money. I had some, but with this, he shook his head and wondering, fingering the bills and coins. There's exactly enough to get me there. He smiled and pumped my hand and left. I stood there, rooted to the ground in shame. I had been willing to throw my money onto the road and walk away, but I had clutched it tightly when I didn't agree with God's direction to invest it in a young man. What is in your pocket right now? Are you willing to let God tell you what to do with it? Are you willing to let him rule you and your wallet? Or do you hold back as I did that night in New Zealand? Those who are willing to give freely as the Lord leads will be allowed the privilege of seeing God multiply their resources to reach the world.